This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 14th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown, making the pitch to young people on behalf of what Leonard Reed called the freedom philosophy is more difficult and yet in many ways much easier today than in years past. The new president of the Foundation for Economic Education, Zilvinas Salinas, describes how his group talks to young people without making economics and its implications, well, boring as hell. We spoke last month in Colorado Springs. Fee is aimed at young people, and uh, when they are beginning to form opinions about uh, how the world works and how the world ought to work, what's the most concerning to you about how young people and you know people who are in their 20s now uh, think about how the world works and how it ought to work? I think the thing that gets me, the thing that really alarms me is all the good kids, all the good people, all the kind of the active kids that have a sort of a, a light in their eyes, they think that only if only they were allowed to make decisions for everyone else, the world would be a perfect place. So you kind of have a like on one hand you have on one hand you have an idealism of wanting to make a world a better place, which I can definitely subscribe to. On the other hand, the skill set or or the tool set that how they imagine they can make the world a better place is absolutely authoritarian. So maybe it's you know maybe it's a lack of wisdom, maybe it's lack of life experience. But I bet these young people think, well, if only someone gave me the magic wand or the power, or if I could appoint the power to people, some good people, everything would be solved. So if we're talking about uh, our side of an argument, very few young youngsters say, you know what, I shall let people think for themselves and and make the market work it out. Very few of them think that's uh, that's a way to go. Well, it's not a natural thing to think. Probably. I'm, yes, I think it is instilled in our education. It is instilled in how we see things. You know, a powerful leader comes and sorts of things out. The captain of the basketball team's pulls through. The quarterback makes this excellent play. There's all this emphasis on leadership. Now, leaders and leadership are perhaps two different things. I mean, no one is opposed to having natural-born leaders uh, rise to prominent positions in society. But what I think that the, the sort of the message that it instills into, into young people, that is, if only I, or if only someone whom I really know, or if my friend Rob was given the ultimate power, he would make an ultimate good. So I think they kind of, they lack the life experience uh, or even the humil- intellectual humility to appreciate the fact that even the smartest person on earth uh, doesn't know anything. I bet if Einstein was elected U.S. president, he'd be an awful president. So what works uh, in terms of getting young people to appreciate that lots of individual decisions uh, produce better results than a top-down imposition of, uh, you know, essentially Mm -hmm. abrogating choices. I think the good thing that works in our favor, and I I used to be a teacher, so I used to teach teenagers about economics and history and the uh, subject theory of knowledge, which is basically some light philosophy of how how do we know that we know things so i think we did we definitely need to we need to apply to their natural curiosity we need to appeal to their skepticism a bunch of teenagers a lot of them are skeptics a lot of them are nihilists if you say a they're gonna they're gonna say b if you say green they're gonna say red so that's on one hand that's hella annoying on other hand if we engage them to think right about things well why do, why would you think that perfect leader would make sense basically i think the trick here is to uh, speak to them in such a manner that their brains start start working, so that they don't jump into these cliche positions. So I think I think we stand a chance, but it's a 
it's hard. I can tell you that. It's hard. It's hard talking to teenagers in a classroom. It's hard creating materials for uh, 16 to 22-year-olds. So what, in your view, has the left in the United States done so well to uh, get so many young people to view socialism as not just an option, but the better option? Well, I think what they did is what Sun Tzu says in his Art of War. Uh, attack what is weak, avoid what is strong. The left is basically, they're taking pot shops at capitalism. They're not saying uh, uh, power to the people tomorrow or nationalize all private property tomorrow. They're saying, well, isn't healthcare not perfect? They're saying, sure, everyone has a car, but wouldn't it be greater if everyone had a better car and that car had a better mileage, it also was green? Uh, sure, everyone has a cell phone, but wouldn't it be great if everyone had an iPhone? So what they're doing, they're not presenting a coherent sort of Marx das Kapital kind of version of a society. They're saying, well, we just want to improve upon current society. They're saying, wouldn't you agree that things could be better? And if you're talking to people who haven't decided what their political affiliation is or frankly don't care, which is most people, that's a very compelling argument. So I think they're good at exposing weaknesses uh, and deliberately avoiding uh, their proposals. Like look at Elizabeth Warren and all these others. Whenever they say, how will you pay for your schemes? They just say, well, that doesn't matter. We're going go, to figure out that later. What works when you're trying to convince young people that uh, freedom or the freedom philosophy of Leonard Reed that he developed so many years ago. What uh, you know? What works in convincing young people that uh, you know top down is not the way to go? Uh, I'd say well, if we start a sentence like this, if we start with well, back in 1946, or uh, you know, let me tell you about freedom philosophy. I think we already <laughs> pretty much lost the battle. <laughs> what does work is taking things uh, that they understand and then tying a message there. As an example, I mean, one of my favorite productions of Fee is the whole video series about the Avengers universe. So everyone knows Avengers, everyone knows Thanos. Thanos wants to basically kill half of the sentient beings in the galaxy because he thinks we're running out of resources. And that's obviously, for those of us versed in economics, that's a whole Malthusian argument. That's a very green, the 1970s argument. But what we did, we, take the, we took that movie and said, well, look, uh, Thanos wants to kill people. That's obviously bad. But not only is it bad because he wants to kill people, it's actually his logic is all wrong. So we, we latched onto that. We took the objects, the subjects that the young people understand, which is the Avengers universe, and we, and we sort of encouraged them to think, well, if you had ultimate power, such as Thanos, couldn't you just double the resources in the, in, the, in the universe? So in that sense, now I'm not saying that's like converted crowds of people, but it has 1.5 million views and most of them are of a, of a sort of, of our age. So I bet out of these 1.5 million people or 1.5 million youngsters, most of them thought about these subjects in that manner for the first time. And that that is engaging. So it's, uh, you know, it's actually pedagogics 101 you take the subjects, the matter, the clay that the young people have, and then you mold your message there. And once again, if you start with my, my current sort of um, joke is, if we talk about young people about corporate income tax, they don't know what really what income is. They don't know what corporations is, nor do they know, really know what tax really is. So, I mean, that is lost. We're talking about a foreign subject in a foreign language. So, if we're talking about a foreign subject, such as liberty, let's at least pick language that they can understand, which in this case was Avengers. You're from Lithuania? That I am. Uh, tell me about your background. 
Well, I was born in 1981 uh, in an unassuming town. Uh, uh, <laughs> Couple of funny stories. So, 1986. You know what what happened in 1986? What's that's in Chernobyl exploded? Well, we and that happened on April 26. Now we did not know that until a week later, just like in the movie or just like in the series. So what was happening on May the first? Uh, there was a mandatory parade, meaning on May the first you have to march in the streets and basically scream that Soviet Union is the greatest thing ever. Well, my parents were bad communists; uh, they really didn't believe in that stuff. So on May the first, we went sunbathing just then as radioactive clouds were passing overhead. So that's a kind of a interesting, interesting thing, thing from childhood. Other interesting thing from childhood, which I think many Americans would appreciate. So in 1991, uh, for the first time, somehow my town got bootleg cable. So basically we're, we're starting to see like foreign channels, CNN, the children's channel, which I think now is Cartoon Network and, and the likes. So there was on my black and white TV watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the great uh, American classic. And I remember all of us in the sort of my friends were figuring out, we couldn't figure out what those, what pizza was. It's like, what, what, why do they like it so much? Is it, is it, is it a treat? Is it tasty? Is it, is it a dessert? Is it a meal? What are these round things on top? So that was a whole new world to us that just basically opened in front of our eyes. That thing that, I mean, we kind of knew the West existed. We just never seen it in our own eyes because no one could really go abroad. And then all of a sudden you have this plugging in into the whole American culture. You have CNN, you have Cartoon Network, you have German channels. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, we knew life is bad, but now it's actually even worse. Because you, you were exposed to how Americans lived? Exactly. Uh, funny story. I mean, uh, Romanian dictator Ceausescu uh, is, a, is a story. He 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 screened Dallas the the, the series for the older generation uh, because because he thought the people will see that capitalism doesn't work because these people sort of sort of conniving each other. What actually happened? Romanians saw that these people live in nice houses, drive nice cars, and not Yugos. And Ceausescu ended up well executed. Let me let me say this. Uh -huh. The only thing I really know about Lithuania, everything, in fact, I know about Lithuania came from the documentary I watched called The Other Dream Team, which is about, <laughs> which is about the 1992 Lithuanian basketball team. I remember this as a child, watching them uh, play for the bronze medal against the remaining Soviet states and beating them and, and essentially establishing Lithuania's uh, identity again. Uh, for the first time since uh, since communism. Well, that actually that began earlier. So there are two tricks here. So one, you might ask, why why are Lithuanians so good at basketball? Is it because we're tall? And sure, I am tall, but that's not a very common trait. Uh, so in fact, Lithuanians just in between interwar years, uh, then basketball was just gaining ground in Europe. Uh, they bought a branch of uh, Lithuanian Americans back to Lithuania sort of play as ringers and they won gold. And all of a sudden said, the Lithuanian said, wow, that is something that we can really be good at. And that's how basketball became sort of popular in interwar years. Then I think it was 84 or 86, uh, within the Soviet Union, you had the, the sort of equivalent of NBA where like cities would have their clubs and they, they would compete. And I think in 86, uh, our team beat uh, the Soviet Central Army Sports Club, which basically, so you have like this, and it was weird because under Soviet propaganda, you could cheer for your for your home team, you could cheer for your town team because that was all friendly socialist 
um, sort of uh, competition. That, of course, turned out into nationalistic things. Because, wow, we are Lithuanians and we just beat the Russians. Isn't that great? Uh, so, I mean, funny enough, uh, or seriously enough, basketball has definitely had a lot of influence on Lithuanian national identity sort of in, in the 90s. So then we beat the Russians or the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, for the bronze. Uh, that was... Oh, that was insult to injury and and uh, and many other things. It was uh, it was for those listening. I highly recommend the movie <laughs> because it's beautiful and it has a wonderful soundtrack provided by the Grateful Dead, which also provided the T-shirts. That's why the team. I think they provided the travel and the training too. <laughs> well, probably not the training, <laughs> not the basketball. Training. But a lot of resources for the for the Lithuanian team came straight from uh, the largest jam band in history. Yeah, absolutely. And that Lithuania is forever grateful to to Jerry Garcia and uh, Grateful Dead because back in those days, exchange rates and all that, the economy was collapsing pretty much. Uh, without that, I don't know what would have happened. So, uh, you know, when you're trying to engage with uh, young people and trying to figure out what works and, you know, and observing fees transition uh, over the last uh, five years or so, um, it seems that uh, your organization is willing to do a lot more experimentation than than a lot of others. And what does that te- what does that teach you? Yes, uh, I think I think you're quite onto something. The, like two reasons: one very profound, and then one very practical. So the you know, for the past probably sixty years, he was just like all other organizations, talking to the people already on our side and enjoying the dialogue, and that's a that's a good thing. Uh, but on well, 10 years ago, uh, when Larry Reed said, you know what, we need to talk to the young audiences. I think we're still finding ourselves that we need to find these ways. Uh, talking to people on our side, debating uh, which Austrian is better, this is in our blood. I mean, we can we can do that with our eyes closed. But actually putting that message into, into such a way that would be interesting to the young audiences, that actually is taking a lot of blood and tears uh, back at work. Because this is, for some people, this is something new. That's why the experimentation. So I think we have no we have no choice but to actually be really professional about this. So what we do, we test messages, uh, we test words, we actually look at what audience says and try to improve. So in one way, it's a very it's a very good exercise. I would actually advise every organization to do that. You know, you, you throw your biases away. Throw, I know this works because I've been writing op-eds for Forbes kind of thing away. Because you're not writing for Forbes. You're not writing for 50-year-old uh, executives about the corporate income tax rate. You're writing to a 18-year-old who has YouTube at his disposal, who can watch anything from dancing kittens to, I don't know, sports, uh, to music, to silly videos on internet. And how do you make sure that you're... Uh, piece about Malthusian economics actually makes him interested. That's the, that's the big hook. That's actually uh, my part art, part science. Zilvinas Salenas is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 